You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church's Gatherings by Travis Scott. You can get connected with more content at shorebreakchurch.com. John chapter 5. You guys can turn to John chapter 5. And we've called this message tonight a real healing. A real healing. Give you a second to turn there. John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1 of John chapter 5, and it says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus, thank you so much that you are here tonight. Thank you that we get to study your word. And we want to honor you. We want to make much of your name. And we need you to invade our life and we need you to invade This time, come down from eternity and speak to us through your living word. We need to hear your voice. So I pray that as this message goes out and as we are in your text, that you would remove distractions, that you would suppress the work that the enemy wants to do. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Famous uh, musician David Copperfield, if you guys know of him, he recently uh, purchased uh, 11 different collections of islands in the Caribbean, 11 of them, for a total of $50 million. I mean, he spent a ton of money, $50 million, on this collection of islands covering over 700 acres It roughly takes about 90 minutes by boat to go from Miami to his different islands. But the cool thing is he even built his own landing strip there because 90 minutes might take too long to go from the harbor to harbor. So he built his own landing strip on this island. And David being asked by reporters, why in the world do you buy 11 islands, $50 million dollars, in this area, what, what's, what's your deal? What, what's going on there? And I love what he said. David Copperfield claims, and then he believes that he found the fountain of youth on one of his islands. He's like, yep, I found the fountain of youth, and so that's how we justified spending $50 million. And so, of course, what he would do, like any person would do, he builds a really nice resort on it for people to stay there. And this ni- resort is so nice If you're going to stay there, it it ranges anywhere between like $37,000 per night to $50,000 per night. It's like, man, that's ridiculous. Like, really? I mean, who would spend that much money? But there's good news. Inclusive with your package is the Fountain of Youth. That's why he charges so much. And it's like, that's crazy. Who would ever spend that much money? Who would invest that much money into their hotel stay on an island. It just goes to prove, though, that people will do anything to add swag to their life, to keep themselves healthier, to keep their life lasting longer because we don't like to age. We want to be healed of some of the the aging things that we're going through. Not just that, 
But we also want to avoid problems of living in this broken and delusional world. So it's like, hey, if I can drink from the fountain of youth, no matter what the cost is, that would be a big help and a blessing. Well, Jesus here, as we just read, is going back to Jerusalem for another feast. Now, we don't know what feast Jesus is is going to here, but um, we are told that Jesus needed to go there. He, he, he spent time here. He goes to this pool. And I think it's just like what he did in, with the Samaritan woman, remember? He had to go there. I believe that this is another one of those appointments where Jesus had to invade someone's life. Someone who wasn't looking for Jesus. Someone who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And we are told in these verses that there are a multitude of invalids. So now to paint this portrait here, Jesus walks up to this pool, five colonnades, which are just these massive umbrellas that provide like shade over this pool because it would have been brutally hot and there would have been hundreds upon hundreds of disabled, sick invalids there, these sick people there. I mean, this place would have been stinky. There would have been like hundreds of people piled on top of one another. They had disabilities. Some couldn't see. Some couldn't do anything. They needed help. And we are told here in these verses that these invalids are crippled, blind, debilitated, and desperate for life. They need healing. They are absolutely hopeless. Now, if you notice, though, as we are reading through this, we, we skipped a verse. You guys notice that? If you look in John 5, verse 3, it goes from 3 to 5 in most of your Bibles. And it's like, well, what's the deal with that? Like, did someone forget the number 4 there? I mean, were they not paying attention when they were work, working on this? Well, for those of us who have New King James versions, the ESV, or even the NASB, we don't have those verses, and we study here at Shorebreak the ESV, but we don't have those verses in here because it's not part of the original manuscripts that the Bible was written in. The earliest, the earliest manuscripts didn't have this verse in there, but it was a footnote that probably over time worked its way into some of the other translations that you might have. But it, either way, footnote or verse in your Bible, it does give us some background. And now you might be thinking, all right, controversy in the Bible. Here we go. Like they screwed up, they messed up. Really? Not really so much. I mean, is this a pivotal point of doctrinal truth? No, not at all. It's, it's more or less a commentary. But what does verse 4 say? For those of you who have like the ESV, New King James, we'll have that on the bottom of your page. For those of you with other Bibles, it says this though. For an angel of the Lord went down, to a, went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So you got these sick people who would have been waiting around for the water to be stirred. That's why they're all hanging out at the pool because we get this commentary, this, this, this background information that as with their diseases and their sicknesses that need to be dealt with, they would sit there and wait for the waters to be stirred because they were so desperate. And much like the fountain of youth, these people here would have risked more than $37,000 a night on an island. They would have risked their life to be healed. 
to be a quadriplegic, just, just to be paralyzed, if that, or to be blind, or the, having a, a mental challenge or disability, for then for you to go up to the pool after you hear that the waters are stirring, you're risking your life jumping into this pool knowing that you might not be saved. In fact, you're risking your life so that you would have the opportunity to have life. So the waters would stir. They'd all be sitting there, wait for it, wait for it. Then hundreds of people would just go and jump in and some would drown. Some wouldn't make it out. It wasn't a good situation. So Jesus walks up to this pool and he spots out this one, focuses on this one man. There's a multitude of them, but why does he go to this one dude here who was crippled for 38 years? It's crazy, 38 years? At this time, many people like, didn't survive this long. Jesus didn't even live 38 years, did he? I mean, he lasted for 33 years, and then, of course, he was crucified. But many others wouldn't live this long, let alone like a, 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 an invalid, someone who is, is paralyzed. And so Jesus goes on this reconnaissance mission to save this man, knowing everything about him. Jesus knew everything about this man, as we will soon read. You guys, Jesus knows everything, everything about you. Every thought that you've had, every desire you've had in your heart that you've maybe have tried to hide from God. God's like, yep, yeah, I've seen it. I know you. I know all of you. I know every secret thing you've done. Jesus knows more about you than anyone, but yet he still loves you more than anyone. Isn't that amazing? I mean, saturate your life and the truth that Jesus still loves you. When you're depressed, Jesus still loves you. When you sin, Jesus still loves you. When you aren't even thinking about Jesus, yet Jesus is thinking about you and he's thinking about the love that he has for you and how he is jealous for you. When you want nothing to do with Jesus, he loves you. And even when you hated Jesus and never thought of him and you were still sinning, Jesus still loved you. And if you were, honestly, like if we were to take a moment and like open up the darkest part of our lives and share it with others, a lot of friends would just bail out on that friendship, right? Or even maybe the one we're married to. I mean, if they knew every single dark secret within our heart, many would be like, I'm done, forget this. I'm calling it quits on this relationship. Not Jesus, not Jesus. He knows every detail about this man's life, including him being crippled for nearly four decades. That's incredible. Jesus knows this detail about him. Verse six says this, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus ever ask this question? Okay, going up to someone who's an invalid, why would he ever ask them this question, do you want to be healed? What is going on here? Do you, do you want to be healed? Let's just be honest, though. Do you really think that everyone at this pool, honestly, do you think they all really wanted to be healed? Probably not, right? 
That's no wonder Jesus would ask this question. And Jesus, knowing every detail about your life and knowing everything that cripples you and your life, I believe he is saying to you and to me tonight this, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Which is going to be our first point tonight in our message. Do you want to be healed? Verse 7. How does this guy respond? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. What kind of response is that? Jesus, who's God, is like, hey, you want to be healed? And he's like, uh, I don't know. Some people just don't want to be healed. I don't know if you guys have seen this guy driving around. I know I have him. There's this like four-way stop that I pull up to, and every time I see him, I, I, I really honestly, I'm not the most compassionate person, just to be transparent, but he's this guy, and, and he's sitting there and you know, holding up a cardboard sign and it says, why lie? I need a beer. And I saw that. I'm like, I appreciate the honesty, right? It's like, okay, I get the honesty. But that guy doesn't even want to be healed, right? He's like, why lie? I need a beer. And he's got his can out there. It's like, yep, I'm admitting I, w- I don't want to be healed. I know I have a problem with alcohol and I'm, a di- I, I, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. But he just wanted a handout. And as pathetic as that is, He just didn't want to get well. I mean, the guy just wants a beer. I've spent some time with my dad, who was a firefighter in different ride-alongs. And, you know, you go and you show up to an emergency. uh, You show up to an emergency, and whether someone's, depending on their condition, if they're mentally stable, firefighters cannot force them against their will, even though they are dying to go to the hospital. Now, of course, if they're mentally totally not there, maybe due to an injury that they sustain, of course, at that point, they can take them to the hospital. But I mean, we've been on some accidents where it's like, I mean, they're just like bleeding on the floor. It's like, oh my gosh, like, you need to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, I can't afford the ambulance ride. I don't have insurance, so I'm not going to go. And it's like, but you need, don't you see, like, your life is on the line. I mean, you, you, don't you want to be healed? Why wouldn't you want to be healed. So I ask you again, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be changed on the inside? I'm not just talking to the the non-believer, but I'm even talking to the believer. Many of us don't want to, right? We don't like change. We don't like things to, to evolve and to change. And to, we, we don't like that a lot of times. It's like, no, I don't want to get better. I mean, I've had counseling appointments where I literally will just sit there and then there are these, they're, they'll, they'll, they're sitting on the other side of the room and they will spend a whole hour like venting on how bad their life sucks. And that's always fun just to hear that for like an hour. And then as they're talking and as they're sharing, it's like at the end, honestly, I've had sometimes I'm like, do you want to change? Like, do you want to get better? I mean, I've seen some marriages like that. I mean, husband and wife are just going at it. And it's like, do, do, you, do you guys want to, like, do you want to work this out? Sometimes just get up and walk out. It's like, no. And they'll file for divorce, and it's sad. Most of the time, we don't want to change. We often don't want to change. Why? 
Well, like in those counseling appointments, like, yeah, I would change if they changed. I mean, if you had to live with this guy, this guy is horrible, or this girl, and, and I mean, if you knew the circumstances of my life, right? If you just knew the circumstances and the hard times that have fallen on me, then you would understand why I don't need to change. My circumstances need to change, right? We do that. I know I have for sure. And or sometimes we think we don't want to change because if the problems disappear or those things shift somehow, things will get better. And our tendency is to be more comfortable in our current misery than to be changed by the gospel, Right? We find more comfort in our current problems and in our current misery than to be transformed and changed day by day in the gospel. See, the greatest enemy to our holiness is pride. Now, we all have different measures of it, including myself. I actually don't have any of it. I don't have any pride. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, we all have different measures of pride and, and selfishness within our own life, and failure to admit our pride proves how infused and how dark our hearts really are, and how we keep things from being exposed to the light. So Jesus asks this man, Do you want to be healed? What does he say? It's like, I can't get to the water, bro. And every time I get over to the water, I try to jump in and someone jumps in before me and takes the healing. And what about my life, right? What about me? Can't you see my legs? Can't you see how big my problems are? And Jesus like doesn't address them at all, does he? I'm sure Jesus hears blah, 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 something, 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 blah, 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 right? This guy's like, can't you see what I'm going through? I mean, it's like, think about this. To put this in perspective, Jesus is offering him healing, okay? To put this in perspective, let's just say you're on your deathbed and you're dying and you're in the hospital. And a physician walks in and he, is a, and he has some different chemicals in his hands and he's like, hey, I have the vaccine to cure your disease. Do you want to be healed? Like, and then what if you responded, well, oh, my, my dad, I'm going to, my dad gave me this disease. It was part of him and he got it from his dad and then his dad's dad, dad gave that to me. Or it's like, or someone comes up to you and it's like, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Do you want it? Here you go. It's available to you. And what if you're like, oh, you know, yeah, no, someone else gave someone else family some million dollars and my, oh, my brother-in-law won the lottery and this and that and that. It's like, what, what is going on here? It's like, dude, just say yes to Jesus. Like, God is in front of you. Can't you just say, yes, I want to be healed? And he gives these excuses. But aren't we just as guilty as this man is? He is limiting his, God's power to his problems and not asking God to do the impossible thing in his life. He is limiting God's power to his problems and not asking for God to do the impossible in his life. But there is good news, right? That's what I love about the story. Check this out. Does this guy want anything to do with Jesus? No. Does he even know who Jesus is? No, he doesn't. This guy has like zero fuel in the tank of faith. 
This guy's like zero faith, wants nothing to do with Jesus, has no desire for Jesus. Jesus asks him for healing. I mean, he is totally undeserving for any healing except for one thing. What is that? He has a disease. His only qualification for healing is he had a problem. He had an issue in his life that was bigger than himself. So what happens? Jesus said to him in verse 8, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. What did Jesus say here? Jesus is like, get up, fool. <laughs> get up. Does he, does he suggest it? Yeah, I think it would be a good idea if, if you got up, actually. Jesus like, he commands it. He's like, hey, get up. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your blah, 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 blah. Your problems, your problems. Get up. I, I love that. The first thing we saw is, do you want to be healed? And the second point is, get up. Get up. Get up. He tells him, get up, take your bed, and walk. is that amazing? I know this is, some of you are like, yeah, I've heard this story before. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool and stuff. Like, no, 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 honestly. Think about that. This guy hasn't taken a step for 38 years. He hasn't walked. I mean, he's been disabled and now he's healed. And when you think about that, disabled and now healed, it's like, I mean, I wonder what it would like to watch him walk. I mean, he's probably never walked in his entire life, has he? Has he walked? I don't know. We don't really know. I mean, what would it be like to see a 38-year-old man take steps for the first time? He's probably, I mean, he might need some physical therapy, right? I mean, what do you think is going on here? It's like, man, you've got to like work on those legs, get some muscles going. Like you've seen like a one-year-old walk. Imagine a 38. No, this guy's like, Jesus like, hey, not only do you have to, let me teach you how to walk now. He can walk. He can pick up his mat, his bed, and, and move. I mean, he's changed. He goes from disabled to healed. And it's like, wow, is it Jesus so powerful? There's like no physical therapy with Jesus, is there? It's like, all right, well, let's work on this. Let's get you to the pool, and then we'll work on you, and then we'll get, No. I mean, when Jesus speaks, even the wind and the seas obey him. Disease obeys him. Death obeys Jesus when he speaks. There is power behind the words of Jesus. We need to absorb Christ's power, and we need to let that absorption of his power and that fear, healthy fear of God, change the way that we live. J.B. Phillips wrote this in his book. It's called, it's called uh, Your God is Too Small. He said, We have not only to be impressed by the size and unlimited power of God, we have to be moved to genuine admiration, respect, and affection if we are ever to worship Him. Pretty awesome. How long did it take Jesus to allow this man for him to sulk in his sin and his disability? Like how long did Jesus like, all right, buddy, just sit there for a minute and just think about what's happened. Sulk in where you're at right now with your disability. How, like how long? 
Look at verse 9. How long was it? Not long at all. And at once. I mean, it's like, boom. Right now. You're not sitting there anymore. Get up. Stand up. You can't sit there any longer in your disability. Not long at all. Somebody ask you, are you moping? Are you sulking? Maybe in a disability or more or less like a sin in your life. Are you just stuck there? You don't have to be, but you're hanging out with your sin too much and you aren't just getting up from it. Though you have the power to, though you're able to. You're just thinking, I, I kind of like, like it kind of like it more, you know? It's kind of comfortable. I mean, feel more comfortable with it. And I have five questions for us to ask ourselves tonight. Maybe questions to ask ourselves as to why we aren't getting up. If we are still sitting on the map. The map. And the first is this. Do you want attention? Do you want attention? I mean, you've met those people, right? They want, you, they want to make sure you know how bad they feel. What they're going through. And you might be sharing something, right? And you're like, okay, well, here's what's going on in my life. And you're like sharing your struggles. Like, yeah, man, like, I, you know, I mean, I just had like a hard time this week. I mean... I wasn't able to go on a date night. And they're like, they like jump in and interrupt you. It's like, man, I'm on the verge of divorce. Let me tell you how horrible my husband is or how horrible my wife is. And let me just like unload all these problems. You're like, whoa, okay. Oh my gosh. Clearly you are in need of some attention. And they just want to make sure that you know how bad you really feel. That's one area to know that we are still sitting and soaking in our sin. Is this, do you want attention? Do you want attention for some of your struggles? Do you want attention for some of your problems? Second thing is this. Are you critical of other people's motives? Are you critical of other people's motives? Now, you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know. I don't know if you guys do this. I totally do this. I assume the worst motives of, like, other people. I mean, when I hear one of the kids crying, you know, and I have three boys, and, like, they'll, they'll go at it and fight. Like, I will immediately assume the worst that someone, like, just, like, took a sledgehammer and just, like, boom, on one of our other kids. But that might not have been the case at all. But I run in, and it's like, all right, who needs to get in trouble? Like, let's go. This is not going to work. And it's like, I mean, I assume the worst motives right away. It's like, why do I do that? You know, or often maybe you assume the worst motive of your spouse, you know, maybe they're trying to do something good, but immediately you assume the worst motive of them. You label them, and it's like, what were you thinking? Really? Like, how could you think of such a thing? Or maybe you do that with friends. You're like, oh, they didn't text me, but I saw on Instagram that they're hanging out with someone else. And oh my gosh, I'm so offended. And now I'm going to assume the worst motives. And then it just goes from there to there to there. And it's like, What? I mean, we immediately are happy to assign motives, and that's another sign that, we sol- that we're sulking on our mat and within our sin. We'll f- try to find and search for sin in other people's lives so that somehow we will be more holy. You know, I don't do that, and I don't think of that, but oh, look at them. Third thing is do you make excuses for your sin? Do you make excuses for your sin? Maybe you've had some incredibly terrible things happen to you in your past. 
all right? I mean, I'm not saying that's, that's okay, like just forget about it all. Listen, I understand that maybe some terrible things have happened in your past, or maybe you're going through some really rough times right now. I get that. But don't let those things excuse you from your own sin or even forgiving others of their sin. After all, isn't that what Jesus said when he was teaching us how to pray? We need to forgive our own we need our own sin forgiven just as we forgive those who've sinned or trespassed against us. And when we make excuses for our sin, what we're doing is we're crippling ourselves from moving forward and moving forward. You know, and often different families who will come from a, an abusive background, you see them struggling with disciplining their own children because of, of, of their past and what has happened there. Or you, you know, you see some relationships or within different people's back, you know, their, their lives. Like they've been abandoned or they've been, they've been left out to, to hang with, from different relationships. And then they become codependent and afraid that maybe the relationship that they have now, that, that they could lose that. And they find their identity in relationships. And we'll say, oh, well, we'll just call it codependency. But really, it's, it's just, it's co-worship. Instead of just worshiping God, we also are worshiping relationships. And we can say, Oh, well, we just call it codependency, or I just really like to have my beers all the time, several times a day, several days a week. It's not, I'm not an alcoholic, it's just I really like alcohol, and we make excuses for our sin. Fourthly, ask yourself this question if you're sitting on the mat, possibly. Have you made progress? Have you made progress? I, I had a friend that I would go and, and, and visit his house quite a bit and he like loved video games and he was working. He's like, he wanted to get in shape, you know, sc- scrub some pounds off and get into shape. So, uh, but he had this like one spot that he would always, you know, I'd go and hang out and he had this game room in his house. And so um, he like asked me to, to like kind of be that coach for him in high school or whatever. I was like, dude, I'd be happy to do that. So he always would sit in this bean bag and just play like video games all day. And so what I decided to do is every time I go over at his house, I, I would just like fluff up the beanbag without him knowing it. And so then I'd know like the next time, the next day I would go in if you like how, like if you played video games or not. And I'd be like, hey, did you play video games? Like, no. And I'd look over the beanbag. I'm like, yes, you did because you were there. Like there's a mark in the beanbag. Like I can tell you have not moved. You have not made any progress. I mean, this guy, this crippled man, this invalid, probably had a wear mark on his mat, on his bed. He had no progress whatsoever. So have you made progress? Are you more concerned with what happened to you in your past than what is happening now in reality and what God wants to do in your life in the future? And for some of you, I mean, that, that, that we're crippled by our past and we haven't made progress because we're tied to the past. That's what Colossians tells us, set our minds on things above and not on the things of the earth. You know, isn't that amazing? That we can't, like, you, you, you can't look up and look down at the same time, can you? No, it's like, if you're looking up, you're setting your mind on things above. You, you're not looking at things of the earth. But when you're looking at th- things of the earth, you're not looking above. And it's one or. It's one or the other. And so this idea is that when we are more concerned with what happened than with what, what is happening now and what will happen in our future, we are slowing our progress down and sulking in our sin. Fifth and finally, do you think about your sin more than you think about 
Jesus? Do you dwell on your sin? Are you obsessed with your sin? Is your mind more consumed by the power of Christ or the pain of your sin? Sometimes all we see is our problems. And then it doesn't, of course, help when we're like not following God the way that we should. And then all those temptations or all those things keep coming up in our mind. And then if that's not enough, then the accuser of the brethren, a.k.a. Satan, comes up. And he's like, yeah, look what you did, fool, you idiot. Why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep falling there? Can't you think about your sin more? Don't think about Jesus. Just keep thinking on your sin. Keep thinking on your sin. And somehow that will make things better and make you more holy. But really not at all. It's not the case. Do we think about our sin more than Jesus. And so I believe Jesus is saying to you and to I, depending on where some of us are at, and maybe, listen, maybe this isn't for you right now, but maybe this is someone that you know, or maybe this is something for you that you might deal with in the future. But either way, I believe Jesus is saying, get up. Get up. This is not an option. You get off your butt and you do something for the glory of God. And I don't know if this guy didn't stand up. I wonder if Jesus like just would have gone up to the mat because he's so demanding here. It's like, well, Jesus, you're so demanding. I mean, don't you understand my sin? Don't you understand my past? And he's like, get up. Well, Jesus, you don't know what I'm going through. Let me explain. Nope, get up. Well, Jesus, I can't forgive myself. I'm like, no, get, get up. It's okay. Get up. He is commanding. And with, whenever Jesus gives a command, he supplies the power of the Holy Spirit so that you would see that command through. He doesn't just leave you out to dry and say, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, get up. He supplies the power with the Holy Spirit. Get up. Jesus is like, I forgave you. I forgave you. I bled myself out for you. I was murdered on a cross for you. And then I was laid in a tomb. But it didn't stay there. I got up out of the grave. And the same power that rose me out of the grave is the same power that can raise you up from that crippling sin or stagnant relationship that you have with Christ maybe. And Jesus is like, you can get up. I've supplied the power through the Holy Spirit. You can repent. You can get up. Things will change. And if you're still breathing, there's still hope for you. That's the good news. That is the gospel. Get up, I believe Jesus is saying. Verse 10. I'm gonna get cut the second half of, of verse nine here. Now that day was the Sabbath. Come on, Jesus, really? Why did you have to heal on the Sabbath? What are you thinking, right? Like what an inconvenience. You're just inviting problems. You know Jesus did that on purpose. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful that you take up your bed. What the heck? Are you kidding? They knew this guy probably. And they're like start busting out the law on him already. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's, it's all Jesus' fault. Jesus made me do this. I don't know if he's really blame shifting or what's going on there. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn. So actually, they're like, well, no one knows who did it at this point. Obviously, except for Jesus. I mean, 
pretty crazy story. And this guy, 38 years. I mean, he was probably like numero uno, number one spot for, you know, as far as all of these invalids. I'm sure no one could top him. He was like the worst of the worst of the worst. And so everyone's rushing around and the pool didn't stir up. So they knew something else was stirring up and happening among them. Of course, we know it's Jesus. And this man has to deal with the religious men, and it's the Sabbath. So it's like, the Sabbath, I mean, it's pathetic. Like, the, the Sabbath is obviously a day of rest. Now, of course, the religious men here, of course, blew it out of proportion. They're like, you can't wax your chariot on the Sabbath. You can't walk to Starbucks. I mean, you can't do any of that. In fact, it's been said that if you were found, like if, if you're a seamstress or whatever during the day, if you left like a needle what, or you, some of your tools like in your pocket and you're walking just, you know, from family to family or whatever on, on the Sabbath and a religious person comes like, hey, what's in your pockets? Can you show me what's in your pockets? And you, and you pull out and you accidentally, they'd accuse you for not honoring the Sabbath. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? They would consider that work. Now, of course, everyone, you have to see what's going on. Everyone who sees Jesus heal, I mean, they don't see it, but they, they see this guy walking and he's picking up his bed. They all surround him. Jesus slips out. You got to love this. Where, this. where is the first place this man goes? He goes to the temple. He goes to the house of God. He got up and he went to the house of God. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse would happen to you. Do you want to be healed? Then Jesus commands us and says, Get up. And our third point is this. You are well. You are well. It's amazing because Jesus doesn't just heal this man from his disease, does he? He heals him from his sin. He erases his sin. He eradicates his sin. And you gotta love, this man never wanted anything to do with Jesus. Then Jesus heals him Then Jesus disappears. He goes straight to the house of God, maybe looking for Jesus or maybe not looking for Jesus at all. And then Jesus again pursues him, comes to find him. And he's like, there you are, bro. I found you. And I want to let you know that you are well. It's going to be okay. Jesus is like, I didn't just heal you outwardly, but he said, go and stop sinning. Go, you are well. You don't have to sin anymore. You aren't held captive to the thing that you really think you were held captive to. You aren't. You have freedom in Christ. It just goes to show this, that godly healing leads to holy living. When you are truly healed by God, it will lead to holy living. It will. Look at the second half of verse 14. Jesus gives this fine print almost, this disclaimer here. He's like, hey, go and sin no more that nothing worse would happen to you. It's like, wait, Jesus, are are you threatening me? Are you saying something worse could possibly happen to me? What's going on here? This disclaimer I believe Jesus is saying is like, hey, you mock my grace 
you mock my saving power and you continue to sulk in your sin, you're not trusting in me. You aren't trusting in my power. You aren't trusting that the cross is stronger than any sin that you've gone through. That my blood is sufficient to purchase you from your sin. Trust it. And if you abuse this grace that I'm giving to you and you take that as a license to go do whatever the heck you want, maybe you're not saved and you will perish. Now, I lo- Jesus isn't expecting perfection here, okay? He's not expecting perfection. But he is expecting continuous growth in the grace of God. After all, when Jesus, going back to to the prayer, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says what? Forgive us of our trespasses. And we're to pray that daily. It's this idea that Jesus even is telling us, hey, you need to confess and repent your sin before God on a daily basis. He's not expecting perfection, but he's expecting a growth in the grace and the holiness of God. But he does give this disclaimer. But you know what's worse than 38 years of paralysis? What could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Eternity in hell. He might have thought he'd be living in hell, but little did he know when he takes his last last breath and he, if he didn't know Christ, spending an eternity in hell, that's far worse than 38 years on this earth, which would have seemed so long. See, Jesus didn't just heal him so then he would go to hell, a happy man. He didn't do that. He erases his sin because godly healing leads to holy living. Holy living. So Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but then to lose his own soul? What good is it that we would go and say, all right, let me serve you, but without giving our friends the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. I mean, it's, it's great and those things are fine and we can use them as a bridge, but man, I mean, what good is it to, to, to gain the whole world but then for us to lose our soul? Jesus, I believe, is saying this, man, listen, temporary pleasure has an expensive price tag. What good is it that we would be healed but not any better at all? And see, Jesus though just, I'm not saying do better, okay? Jesus isn't even saying for you to do better, but he's saying be healed. He's commanding us and saying you are well. If you are a Christian, you are, you're well. My, cur- my son Curran, when he was about two years old, uh, when I would get ready to go to work, um, you know, I'd always leave my shoes at the front door. And so I'd, I'd, I'd always, I knew my, my last part of me getting ready was getting ready to put my shoes on, of course. And so he started picking up on this, this trend. And so he's like, oh, you know, he couldn't say much, but he's starting to figure things out here. And so he sees the shoes and he sees me heading towards the door. So he would actually go run in front of me and like grab my shoes to take them away. Now, of course, that's cute being a dad. I know what he's saying. Like, don't go to work, like, right? And he's somehow thinking, though, that by taking the shoes away, that I'm not going to go to work. But, of course, there's more at stake than, you know, him just taking my shoes away than me going to work. I mean, I have to provide for my family. I mean, there will be no shoes to put on. There will be no roof overhead or, you know, 
meals that we'll be eating if he keeps taking my shoes away, obviously. I mean, there's, there's more at stake than, than that. And it's cute because he's like trying to change my behavior, right? Like don't go to work by taking away my shoes. But was the, were the shoes really the problem? No. The shoes weren't the problem. My heart was the problem. He thought by taking away the shoes that he could modify somehow maybe my behavior, but not realizing that that modifying behavior ultimately doesn't change someone's heart. And so when Jesus says, go and sin no more, he isn't saying, just be better, but he's saying, fight your sin, be healed because you are well. Don't modify or change your behavior. Like, I'm going to stop sinning. It's not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to do the right thing. She's like, no, no, no. Don't you get it? You're, you're dealing with the shoes. You're going to deal with the heart of the issue. You can't modify your behavior to do better, but you need to be healed because if you are a Christian, you are well. I love what John McCarthy said, MacArthur says. He says that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Sometimes you can try to modify our behavior. It's like, well, I'm just going to stop smoking, stop rolling, stop partying, stop thinking about that. But it's like, no, no, no. It's like, it's deeper than that. We have to get to the heart and the root issue. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. This is this examination that needs to take place. See, Jesus healed so that we would be holy, not just better. Now, it's hard, though, because aren't we consumed with the outward? Aren't we consumed with what's going on outwardly? Sometimes so much so that we actually focus on our outward more than we do in our inward growth and on our heart. It's like, well, I, wanna, I need to work on my outward appearance. I mean, I need to do this and I need to do that. And some of us stare at the mirror more than we do, than we stare at the pages of the Bible. We can focus on this outward thing. Do you remember, you guys remember when uh, Prophet Samuel was called by God to go and to uh, find the next king of, of Israel? And, and so God tells Samuel to go to Jesse. And Jesse's this dad who has many, many sons. And so Samuel goes, the prophet goes up to Jesse and he's like, hey, let me, let's, let's see your boys. Like we're, we're here, we're gonna select and pick a king for Israel. Like how huge is that? And then so of course, uh, Jesse goes and gets all of his best sons and he gets the buffest, the strongest, the smartest, the cutest, the whatever, and he lines them all up. And then Sam was like, all right, let's go. He's like, all right, God, is it this one? He's like, nope. He's like, but God, I mean, he's like seven feet tall. Come on, like he'd be a perfect leader, right? He's like, what about this guy? God's like, nope. What about this guy? Nope. And you guys remember what, what God told Sam? He's like, yeah, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God is concerned with what is going on inwardly while we are busy just looking outwardly. See, at the end of the day, the problem is not our circumstances or the things that are going on outwardly, but the problem is something that is going on in our hearts. And we can often get stuck polishing the outside of the cup when fungi is growing on the inside. I mean, that's what Jesus actually accused the religious people of doing. He said this in Matthew 23, 25. He says that I love, Jesus is so blunt. Listen to this. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, 
Hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. The heart needs to be dealt with. But when you understand that Jesus says, do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? Get up. You are well. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit doing that in you. Let him do that. And if you're a Christian, listen, eventually he's just going to command that over you and he's going to, going to humble you if you aren't willing to humble yourself through that. Something else is exposed in this story that we just need to make a quick note of. This guy was healed for like how long? Like maybe an hour? I mean, he just, just got healed and then what happens here? He's just healed and then immediately opposition comes. Opposition, boom. The problems start coming and who brings the problems? The religious people of all people. Religious people sometimes are the worst. See, when you drop into what God has called you to do and he begins to heal you and your passions change and your desires change and you begin to follow him, you notice the opposition comes along and like, really, you're gonna go do that? You shouldn't do that. That's not wise. Why would you think of that? Why would you go there? Why would you do that? Why would you pour and invest your time into that thing? What are you thinking? There's no logic behind that. And it's the religious people who do that. And it's like all of a sudden, the moment you begin to pursue what God wants for your life, it's like attacks start coming left and right, don't they? They just do. The moment you're like, okay, I'm going to get in the word in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon or whenever. Some people are like, hey, when's the best time for me to get in the Bible? Whenever you possibly can. I don't care if it's the morning or the evening, just get in the book, you know? But it's, it's, you know, it's like, well, the moment you begin to get in the word and all of a sudden the kids start going crazy. You know, there's the fire alarms go off. The building's burning down. I don't know. I mean, just things all of a sudden just get in the way. And it's like, why is that? Have you ever noticed that? It's like the Truman Show. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. It's with Jim Carrey. And it's actually one of the the first dramas that he played in. He didn't like win in awards or an academy for anything. Though I think it's a great movie because um, it was a unique role for him to play. But the reason why he did it was because the unique storyline behind it kind of captured his attention. And if you guys don't know the Truman Show, basically he's, this, this boy is raised up on television in a fake world. And as he's beginning to realize what's going on in this fake world and the cameras are all over the place, like this camera falls down from the sky and it says like Sky Cam 4. And, and then all of a sudden people like try to rush up and tell him, it's all fake, it's not real. And he's like, what are you talking about? But the moment he begins to pursue and he begins to realize that there's more to what he's doing in this fake world. All of a sudden, they start like throwing natural disasters and all these fake natural disasters in this fake world. That start, everything starts coming, attacking him and everyone tries to divert him. And, and that's exactly what happens when you begin to do what God has called you to do. The moment Jesus says, get up, you are well, then the opposition comes. Before it was you talking yourself into staying sulking in your sin. Now the devil is going to accuse you. The accuser of the brethren is going to do that. But when you drop into what God has called you to do, just like when you drop into a wave, the, the opposition drops in with you. And it's there. But of course, greater 
is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. <laughs> this guy couldn't shut up. He's like, I don't know who healed me before, but I'm better. He's like, yeah, now guess who healed me? Jesus healed me. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus is like, God heals any day. You think it's the Sabbath, bro? Jesus will heal any day, all right? Who cares if he picked up his mat? The guy's healed, right? You're worried about all these little things. The guy's better. In verse 18, this was why the Jews were all seeking more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And that's pretty powerful there. And that's next week. We're going to unfold that more. Notice this, so can you, like, if Jesus couldn't get it right with religious people, can you? Guys, you can never, ever, 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 ever get it right with religious people. You're never good enough. You're never holy enough. You never do the right things enough. You're never perfect enough. See, their demands of the religious people are unreasonable. But listen, it's not about the Bible for them, but it's about rules. It's about keeping up with certain things. And honestly, I think that's why most are burned by Christianity, is it not? Most people don't necessarily have a problem with Jesus, but they have a problem with, well, you know, you have to do this and you have to do this. And I mean, you can't go talk to that person anymore because they use cuss words. What's a, where does this say that in the Bible? Well, I don't see that. And so what they do is they begin to add legalism. They'll say, oh, you have to be in the word an hour every single day. And if you're not, you're gonna go to hell. Or if you, It's like, Really? I don't read that in this Bible. I mean, we want to be in the word. We get to be in the word, but it's not like this religious legalism. And you see, when rules trump your relationship with Jesus, you're, you're actually being caught under legalism and not being caught under grace. And that's a dangerous place that you have to fight, even within yourself, because the religious person inside of you can be like, well, I'm awesome and I'm great. And here's why. And then we begin, it's like, no, no, no. See, Jesus didn't come after religious people, though, did he? He went after the sick. He went after the hurting. He went after the broken, the hopeless. Mark 2, 17. Jesus said, Jesus speaking, healthy people do not need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not only those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And so Jesus is saying to us tonight, do you want to be healed? Get up. You are well. Stop sinning. The power is within you. And this man was totally undeserving, right, of one, of, of, of anything. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't seeking for God. He didn't want anything to do with God. Though he was totally undeserving, the one qualification was this. He had a disease. And so it is with us, right? Do you deserve God's grace? Like, I don't. 
I've done nothing good within my own to deserve the grace of God. But what qualifies us is the disease of sin. So we're going to take communion now in a few moments, and it's going to be beautiful when we do. And I just want you guys to let those three things set within what Jesus says. He's like, be, he's like do you want to be healed? Well, be healed. Respond to faith in Jesus if you don't know him. Believe in his name and be saved from eternal judgment and hell. Then get up. Get up, walk. You have the power. You are free to be encouraged with that. And even as we are going to sing these worship songs, and the first song that we sing, we, we're, we're all going to get up. Or for those of you who, who want to take communion, if you're a Christian, that's for you. If you're not a Christian, obviously these elements are reserved for those who have faith in Christ only. But this is, for the, for the Christian, this is available to all of us to take communion. So when, when Jarrett comes up and plays in a moment, I mean, we're all going to get up and take these elements that remind us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us, the blood that he poured out because he loved us for the, so that we would be washed clean from our sin. And of course, not only that, remembering his body that was broken for us and that that broken body didn't stay broken, did it? It rose from the grave. He conquered death. And even as you take communion, so what we're gonna do is we're all going to come and take our bread and, and dip it in the juice and just sit back in your seat. We're gonna have two worship songs. and So take your bread and, and dip it and sit back in your seat and just meditate on these things and take it when you feel led. And know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are well. You are forgiven. You are freed. And Jesus truly does love you. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord, and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus and answer any questions. If you'd like to support the gospel going out through Shorebreak, you can click the Give button at shorebreakchurch.com. You can give a one-time gift, a recurring gift, or whatever God puts on your heart. Mahalo.